please open your Bibles, your copies of God's Holy Word. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we keep searching the Word of God. Now focusing on the resurrection of Christ, according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we will be reading from verses 1 through 11, but as I have told you this morning, the focus of our message now, this evening, will be on the resurrection of Christ, which means that we'll be focusing primarily on verses 4, 5 through 8. So please read with attention God's holy word once again. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then, last of all, he was seen by me, as by one also also as by one born out of two time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Amen. This is God's holy, inerrant word. In the middle of the last century, there was a, a British minister, a pastor, a minister called William Sangster. And I'd like to start the sermon telling a little bit about his story. Sangster was a, a minister that he began to lose his voice and his mobility in the mid-1950s. He was suffering from a kind of disease that caused him to have progressive muscular atrophy. He was losing the movements of his body, including his legs, his arms, and eventually even his vocal cords. So he was not able to sing psalms anymore, to praise the Lord with his voice. And he recognized that the end was coming near, that eventually his internal organs would fail as well, and he would die. In those last moments of his life, in the midst of that suffering, he begged the Lord and he prayed and he said, Lord, let me keep fighting. Lord, I don't care if I can no, no longer be a general, meaning that he would lead the church, but just give me one regiment to lead. Just give me some ministry work to do while I can still do it. And by the end of his life, he began to write more. He began to pray more silently. And eventually, Sangster's voice completely failed. 
His voice was gone. His legs were rendered useless right before Easter, when some people celebrate the Easter, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ, of Christ. And on that moment, on Easter morning, when he was thinking about the resurrection of Christ, a few weeks before his death, actually, he wrote a letter to his daughter. In that letter, he shakily picked up the, a quill in which he was, was still able to write. He wrote this letter to his daughter. And I read from his letter. He says, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and not to have a voice to shout out, He is risen. But it would be even more terrible to have a voice and not to want to shout out. So regardless of the Easter celebration, let's keep that aside, but the desire of this beloved brother here to celebrate the resurrection of his Lord, even when he had no voice to do it anymore, that's what's so staggering about his life. Not uncommon, what, not unlikely what we have just seen actually in Psalm 88. In the midst of great suffering, there was still hope. And he had a deep hope that his resurrected Lord was alive, waiting for him, and he was about to go to be with his Lord. Brothers, tonight we will be dealing with the resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. And I, I presented to you that there's a lot of hope for us in knowing our Lord as a resurrected Christ, as, a, as our, our, our Lord, as one that has died but also has risen again from the dead. And as we look again into this text, I want to remind you of that same proposition, of that same general truth that I said in the morning, that's the message, the essence of our message this evening, that the death and the resurrection of Christ, those are both historical events that happened in history. And they constitute the essence of the gospel, those two roots of the gospel. Those facts were foretold in the scripture long ago, they were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were preached by the Apostle Paul. And now as the Apostle writes to the Corinthian church and to us by extension, we are called to remember those truths. From verses 3 to 8, again, the focus is on the contents of the gospel. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, it's a call to remember the gospel. Verses 3 to 8, the focus is on the contents of the gospel. And we will see this evening that the resurrection of Christ indeed is according to the scriptures. Well, in order for us to have a, a good understanding of this doctrine, we'll, I will proceed similar to, to the morning service with a first point in which we will deal with how this doctrine of the resurrection of Christ has been foretold in the Old Testament, how it is indeed according to the scriptures, and in a second point we will deal with the significance or the relevance or the so what question of the doctrine. How does that apply to our lives? But as, as we come to the doctrine of resurrection, which is central here in this whole chapter, I have dealt with the death of Christ, which is here indeed. We need to understand that this, this is really the, the center of the argument of Paul. He is establishing the death and the resurrection of Christ as the basics of the gospel because he wants to proceed from verses 12 on to show that those that are teaching false doctrines concerning the resurrection, are, they are just wrong. They are wrong because this has been foretold in the Old Testament. And it is important for us to understand what kind of objections were being raised in context here to the resurrection of Christ. You see, if you, if you read even in the first chapter of the epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 on, 
that you see that general objection there. First Corinthians chapter eighteen verse verse chapter one verse eighteen says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then a little later, you keep reading verse 22. It says that Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks. Foolishness. So the objection to the resurrection, it starts with the very idea of the cross. The cross itself, it's absurd to Jews and to Greeks for different reasons. So it starts a little earlier. It's not just an objection, as you would see, for example, in the doctrine of the Sadducees, that there's no such a thing as a resurrection of the dead. There's no uh, 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 spiritual event in which people are resurrected. But it starts even with the, the, the doctrine of the death of Christ and the cross. There's this general objection here. You see, the, the, there were people there that wanted evidence, an evidence of the coming Messiah, the Jews, the religious of that time, they were specifically looking for miraculous signs and attestations of the coming of Christ. And those that they saw, they neglected or, or they explained it away because they didn't want to accept the implications of Christ being the Messiah. And they, they look at the cross. And what is their reaction? Verse 22 of chapter 1 says that they request a sign, the Jews. And then you read a little later, it says, for the Jews, the cross and the resurrection together with it is a stumbling block. But the Greeks, they had a different reaction. They were looking after wisdom, and for them the cross was foolishness. This general reaction will affect the way in which people will reject the resurrection as well in chapter 15 that Paul was dealing with it. Many of the Jews, they remain incredulous. They want signs. Christ gives them signs. They reject the signs. They are incredulous. Maybe our society nowadays looks a little less like the Jews, but more like the Greeks that were seeking wisdom, to whom the idea of God, the idea of deity, the idea of the divine was embodied in a, we can say, in a somewhat simplistic way, in a kind of a, superhuman, a superhero. You see, the the, the Greek gods and goddesses, they they were kind of like superheroes. They had human emotions, they had human volition, but they they were just much beyond humanity because they had powers, they had uh, control over nature, but they still had human passions. For the Greeks to see a man nailed on a cross... That was a sign of weakness, not of strength. And for him to think that for that man to die and then to to resurrect later would prove something, it wouldn't prove anything for a Greek because he died at first place. He was a weak God in the conception of the Greek who was seeking after wisdom. For him, the, the cross was foolishness. The resurrection by extension is also foolishness for the Greeks. It makes no sense that a man would be nailed to the cross, so fragile, so vulnerable as Christ was, and to be still God. A Greek God would destroy everyone and kill everyone and come with his mighty power of war to rage against those that would oppose him. 
That's not the idea of, of the Greek God. But as we consider this general objection here, you see that for, for them, for, for the Greeks, it would be madness to say that Jesus is God. And although some of the Gentiles, for some of them, the death of Christ would show that Christ couldn't be God. The truth is that Christ himself, he didn't, he didn't stay that. The scripture actually portrays a different picture that in Romans chapter 1 it says that Christ is precisely by the resurrection confirmed to be God with power. God with power. This is the context in which the apostle is dealing with those objections to the, the resurrection. Some think that the resurrection and the death and the whole package there is something irrational and absurd that goes against human just this, against human knowledge. The skeptics, they claim that a man cannot rise from the dead. They claim that nowadays in our current language that this is just a story. But the answer to those objections is found in, in our text today. In the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ according to the scripture. Paul the apostle affirms that the resurrection of Christ is not just a mythology, it's not just a story. It's not something without basis, as the, the Jews would claim it to be. They wanted signs and miracles, and Christ gave it to them, but they just rejected it, but they were there. And Paul comes back to say to the church that he has delivered that which he has received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was indeed buried. He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. What does it mean that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures? You see, I have divided the death and the resurrection of Christ in two messages just for didactic purposes. But it's really a whole package. It's really a whole package. We have seen in the morning two texts, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, right? Those two texts, they, they are more clear about the circumstances of the death of Christ. But they also have prophecies about the resurrection. I will deal with other texts this evening, but let me show you briefly how this is there in both texts as well. If you remember what we have seen in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about all of those five marks, those five characteristics of the Messiah that would come. But as, as it is, as we read on verse 9 on, that says that they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich at his death, because he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet... It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. You see, it is prophesied that this man would die. But at the same time, it is prophesied that this man would see his seed. How is this possible? There's a restoration. There is if you don't want to say a resurrection, there's at least the concept of death and life again implicit in this text. There was death and then there was life again. His life is offered. When the life is offered, the life is done away with. He dies. But then, this man shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And... The word of God says about Christ that my servant, my servant here. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So, I present to you that even in Isaiah 53, the resurrection is, is at least already hinted here. Because a man is spoken about as if he was put to death, set to die. But still he is spoken about as if he was living afterwards. Psalm 22, similarly, presents the same idea. As you read on Psalm 22, a little later after the verses that we have read, we have read from verses 16 through 18, but if you keep reading, if you keep reading a little later, the Lord's servant is proclaiming praises. Verses 19 on, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. My strength hasten to help me. I cry for help. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 21. And then it says in verse 21, You have answered me. And then it starts a series of praises. A series of praises for the deliverance, the salvation of the Lord. So, even if it is not that explicit, but both texts talk about death and life. About a situation in which there was doom and fatal doom. And then a situation in which there was deliverance and life. And preservance of life. But I want to deal with you with another text, another psalm. And the psalms are so rich, so rich. Another psalm that predicts more specifically the resurrection of Christ. Psalm chapter 16. Very much known psalm for predicting the resurrection of Christ. Psalm chapter 16 verse 10 says. I'll read from verse 9 on. Therefore my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor you will allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Now, this is a miktam of David, as a, a, a psalm of David. And at first, you can think that David, when he is talking about verse 1, there, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. My soul has said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And then he goes on. You can think that this psalm is primarily talking about David. And it could indeed reflect some of David's experiences as he prayed to the Lord. But as we go a little later in the book of Acts chapter 2. There's a very much known sermon there. There's a, a sermon there from the Apostle Peter. And he quotes the psalm. Peter is preaching his sermon from verses 14 on of Acts chapter 2. He stands up before the men there, the men of Judea, and he starts to preach. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He go, goes on and, and speaks about the prophecy of the prophet Joel. He explains what is going on there in Pentecost. On the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then, verse 22 on, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the predeterminate counsel of God. By the determinate 
purpose and foreknowledge of God, as the King James puts it, you have taken by lawless hands. And he is really pointing the finger, not unlike Paul in Romans 1 and 2, you are all sinners in need of grace. And then he goes on and he grounds his preaching of Christ being the Messiah on Psalm 16. He says in verse 25, I foresaw, David says concerning him, Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, my tongue was led, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, the Greek word for Sheol in Hebrew, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make my, me full of joy in your presence. And he argues with the congregation. He says, look, this is not about David. You may think this is about David. But what I present to you, Peter says, that David, he saw corruption. He was buried. He is both dead and buried. And we have his tomb with us even unto this day. Therefore, David being a prophet, he was talking about what God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, the promised one, to sit on his throne, for foreseeing that he spoke concerning Christ. So this is just one example of many texts in the Old Testament, but this particularly predicts the resurrection of Christ, because it says that his body will not dwell in Sheol, it will not be in Hades, his flesh will not see corruption, but he will be resurrected. This is not about David. This was about Christ. For it has always been about Christ, this text. This Jesus, Peter says, verse 32, God raised up of which we are all witnesses. You see, the death of Christ has always been according to the scriptures. It was predicted of old that this would happen. Psalm 16 is one of those examples. But the fact of the resurrection was predicted. This was not news for the Jews, or it should not be news for the Jews. If they knew their, their Bible well, they should have known that Christ would come, that he would die for sinners, and that he would resurrect. But our text in 1 Corinthians 15, it's precise. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. Not only that... The resurrection of Christ is according to the scriptures, but it says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We have seen the, the, the prophecy of, of, of his burial already in Isaiah 53, but the third day according to the scriptures. Wow. How is it that Christ's resurrection on the third day was prophesied of long ago? Well, I present to you that even though I think the focus, there are a few texts that I could go in the Old Testament that I think that could point to that. They are a little more obscure. But I think that as Paul was indeed lying heavily in the Old Testament, Paul had an understanding of scriptures that would allow him to see beyond the Old Testament. Before, what I want to do here is that I want to show to you that there was a prophecy about Christ being raised in the third day, or at least some prophecies about Christ being raised on the third day on the New Testament, spoken by the mouth of Christ himself. But in order to do that, I need to demonstrate to you that when Paul was speaking here of 
the gospel being according to the scriptures, even though I think there was an emphasis in the Old Testament, I don't think it was limited to the Old Testament. And how do you see that? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. It's the classic text that we go to speak about the New Testament being scriptures, in the understanding of the apostles, in the understanding of the mind, in the mind of the, the apostles. The New Testament, the letters of Paul, were indeed scripture. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, 16. Peter is talking about Paul's epistles, and he says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scripture. And you say, okay, that shows that Peter knew Paul's letters to be scripture. Okay, good enough. Does that mean that Paul understood the Gospels as Scripture as well. Well, I don't have time to do a, a careful study with you here, but if you look at the letters of Paul, it's very clear that Peter had understanding of, an understanding that everything that was being written there under the New Covenant by the, the inspired apostles was Scripture. Everything that was being scripturated by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, and preserved in the context of the, the church was Scripture. But Paul had the same understanding. Paul understood the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, to be Scripture as well. Why do I say this? If you do a careful study of the letter of Ephesians, you will find a number of quotes there from Luke. Paul quotes Luke directly in Ephesians. I don't have time to do a detailed study here. Uh, at some other time, I could maybe send to you some more information about this. But what I'm, I'm trying to, to show it to you is that at least Peter is very clear, and Paul, I would argue the same, they quote Scripture often, and they treat the Gospels as Scripture all the time. John does that. First, first John chapter 2, verses 10 on there, when John is talking about a new commandment I give to you, which is not new, but it is old in him. He's quoting John chapter 13, verse, verse 34, when Christ said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you. So, there is this interchange between the letters and the Gospels. And those that were writing the letters, they understood that the Gospels were Scripture. With that said, let me show you briefly how Christ himself predicted that his death would take place and that on the third day he would be resurrected. There's a number of texts in which he does that in the Gospels. One of them is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 on. Matthew chapter 12, he does that by typology, interpreting the Old Testament. Verses 38 on of Matthew 12, we read that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Look at the Jews. They want signs. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of South will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And you see, the Jews really understood what he meant when he said those words. He was saying that he was the one that was greater than Jonah. He was the one that was greater than Solomon. He was the son of man. They understood it so well that they wanted often to throw cast stones at him to kill him because of those words. This was a prediction of the resurrection of Christ in the third day by typology. Jonah was a type of Christ. But you say this is a little bit obscure. Maybe the Jews didn't understand it, even though, okay, it was prophesied. Well, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Christ says, when he is cleansing the temple, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Verse 16. And then the Jews, they answer him when he was cleansing the temple. They, they say to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things in the temple? Christ answers them. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But look at what the blessed apostle interprets for us here on the following verse. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. I believe those things are put actually in a position here. The scripture of the Old Testament, but which is indeed also the word that he has said. It's equivalent to the word that he has proclaimed as scripture as well in the New Testament. And you see that even though it might not be as clear as one would like, indeed, Christ has predicted himself. And there are texts in the Old Testament, a little obscure, that could point to this three-day prediction as well, which I want to deal with today. But there's the specific prediction. The resurrection of Christ, that he was buried and that he resurrected on the third day. Indeed, this was according to the scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament, but also the scriptures of the New Testament that the New Testament writers knew to be scripture. The resurrection of Christ is well established. It has been predicted of old, it has been fulfilled in him, it has been preached to the Corinthian church, it has been reminded to them and to us here today who are to know with certainty that this is not an old wife's tale, this is not a story. For, for bedtime, for kids. This is true. This is the gospel according to the scriptures. But well, brothers and sisters, there's even more. Paul, he, he doesn't stop at the, with the argument of scriptures. He says, he, he keeps going on verse 4 on, he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And verse 5 on until verse 8, he lists a number of witnesses. He was seen by Cephas, by the twelve, five hundred brethren, by James, all the apostles, and himself. 
No, from verses 8 on, and especially 9 through 10, Paul will do kind of like a, a digression to speak about his own personal experience of encountering with Christ. We won't deal with that today. But it, the fact is that he was one of those witnesses. And you see, Paul is not making by any means an exhaustive list here. It's just a simple. So, not only the resurrection and the death and the resurrection of Christ are according to the Scriptures, but they have, they have been witnessed. Largely, this was a verifiable fact at the time of Paul. Let me give you a, a sample of witnesses that, that I, within, I don't know, 15 minutes looking at my Bible, I came up with a, a, many witnesses. And you can do the same in your Bible if you, or if you use something like Logos, it really helps. And then you can search, but... Uh, the, the Bible has many witnesses for the death and resurrection of Christ. It, it presents Mary Magdalene in John 20. It presents Mary, the mother of James, Solomon, and Joan in Matthew 28. It presents Peter in Luke 24. There are the two disciples on the road of Emmaus in Luke 24 as well. There's the group of disciples without Thomas, and then the group of disciples with Thomas, both episodes in John 20. There are seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee, in John 21, there are 11 disciples at the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 28. There are more than 500 brethren. There's James and there's Paul himself. So it's a, there are many more other witnesses that are not listed here. Paul is simply making the point, this has been attested by the Old Testament. Even if you, if you don't believe that, if you are like Thomas, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said and you want to touch in the hands of Christ and you want to see his side pierced, well, here's verifiable facts for you, church. There are many witnesses. Now, our faith is not based on those witnesses. It's based on the words of the, the Scriptures. But Paul is bringing this to show the Christian church and to show even us today that our faith is not blind. It's not irrational. Sometimes you, you hear about pastors and preachers and people talking about faith as a leap on the dark. You just got to do this leap of faith and believe. Well, that's not Christian faith. Christian faith, first of all, doesn't have much to do with the, with the character of your own faith, but the center of the Christian faith, it's centered around the object of the faith. Faith, in itself, it's not anything particularly valuable or good. You, you see that, uh, I mean, I won't get too much in this, but we need to understand at least this, why Paul is making this claim here, that the faith, the facts of faith are verifiable here in the context. That faith places its hope and its trust in God and in His promises. I know you, you have been studying the book of Romans, you will eventually get to Romans 4, and you will see the faith of Abraham. He believed and this was credited for him as righteousness. He believed what? God and His promises. The one who makes those that are dead alive. And faith here, it's, it's shown to us that our faith indeed is not blind, but it, it is grounded in scriptural truths. And by, by grace, by sheer mercy, God often overabounds what He has already given to us in giving us more evidence than even we need. You see it? 
He's trying to make the Corinthian church here firm in the truths of the gospel, in the doctrine of the death, and especially the resurrection of Christ. And he lays down argument over argument over argument to show that this is true. Now for us today, brothers and sisters, as we ourselves are not left without testimony, we have the word of God, we have the Bible, the inscripturated truth that we have here that has been preserved to us faithfully by the work of the Holy Spirit, by God's work of providence in history, so that we have a faithful testimony. And we are left without excuse if we deny those basic truths of the death and the resurrection of Christ because it has come to us as certain truths, as undeniable facts. It has really divided history. And what is the relevance for this, of this for us today? How do we answer the so what question? Why is this important? Well, there are a number of things that could be said here. But first, remember that earlier I, I talked about the death of Christ taking away our sins. But there's an aspect of justification that is, is specifically highlighted in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ points to us for the impartation, for the giving of justice of God, how God gives justice to us. Turn with me briefly, briefly to Romans chapter 4, the last verse of Romans chapter 4. And read the last verse of Romans chapter 4 with me. Chapter 4, verse 25. Speaking about Christ, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, again, I divided death and, and, and resurrection didactically here. It's a whole package, actually. Justification comes to us because of the death and the resurrection of Christ, not just because of one of them. But there's a sense in which Christ being delivered up to die, of course, highlights our need for pardoning. Because he was delivered up because of our offenses. And there's a sense in which the, re the resurrection of Christ, the fact that he was raised up, highlights the impartation of God's justice. God giving justice that is not our own, but giving justice to us, making us declared righteous in his sight. Because it says here in the text that he was raised up because of our justification. So it is indeed a whole package, but you see, if Christ had only died, if he had not resurrected, we would not be justified. We would not. Because the word of God says to us that it was in his resurrection, chapter 1, verse 4 of Romans, that it was in His resurrection that Christ was declared the Son of God with power. So it is by this attestation of Christ as the Son of God that we are certain that He is God. So that we believe like Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans. We believe in Him and in His promises. And we take hold of all that He is, of, who, of the person that He is, of His work towards us by faith in his death and in his resurrection, in his whole work, in his active and passive obedience, in his perfect fulfillment of the law, his active obedience, in his suffering for our sins, in receiving the penalty of the law, his passive obedience, all of this comes together in the death and the resurrection of Christ as a whole package. You couldn't really have the one without the other if you were to be justified. You have to have both. 
And indeed, this gives us a full assurance as we look again at those prophecies that show us that, show us that Christ indeed resurrected, even in the third day, according to the scriptures. We are certain again, we have not only forgiveness of sins, but we have justice credited to us. Can you imagine that, believer? God, the Almighty God, He rejoices in you now because He sees Christ, His Son, in you. He loves what He sees in you. He really does. Why is that? Because He doesn't see your sins, your failures, your stumbles, your weaknesses. All of this is done away and it's thrown away through the window away from you. Because Christ has not only forgiven your sins, but He has credited you justice to you by His resurrection. And you, indeed, are beloved of the Father. If you only believe in Him, you are now in union with Christ. And all of His righteousness is imparted to you. You are now loved of God. All that He sees in you, He loves. This is not an excuse for sin, you know, Believers that are immature or false believers, they use what I'm saying as an excuse for sin. Christ loves you so much, He can't love you less. This is true. This, the, this makes your sin much worse then. When you sin, you are sinning against such a loving Father that has loved you with so much love and grace and mercy. He has made you to be united with, with His Son, the Father. And now you have communion with God and all that He sees in you is by grace. Indeed, there's no sin that if you are a true believer, if you have trusted in Christ, there's no sin that you can commit that can take you away from heaven from now on because you have your trust placed in Christ. But if you ever sin, you're sinning against so much great love that it makes, makes it much worse. But indeed, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have believed in Him for your salvation, that He died to take away our sins, that He has resurrected to give you life, and in Him you put your trust. This is how you are seen from the heavenly perspective. As one in, in whom there's no imperfection because He sees Christ in you, united with you. This is a great, great truth. In Christ resurrecting from the dead, also we have hope for our own deaths. Deaths is not an enemy anymore. This is another relevance of the resurrection of Christ because, you know, death is not part of ordinary lives. It, it, it really is not. It's unnatural. When beloved ones die, we, we feel it. We, we miss them because this should not be part of a common life. Death was introduced in the world because of sin. And death, the great enemy, has had its apparent victory until Christ came into the world. And shown that he was the victorious one. That he, in death, the death, the great enemy that would swallow everyone. That Christ has overcome death. He conquered death. And now because of the resurrection of Christ. Because it is indeed according to the scriptures. It is true and firm. Now we have firm in our hearts as well. That we have already overcome death as well in him. Now we fear the pain of the body. And you might fear death. In a sense, it's, it's a challenge to us. But really, really, if we really understand what the Bible teaches us about the resurrection of Christ, that in His resurrection, He has been the first of many 
to enter into the heavenly realities. Now death is not an enemy against you anymore. It's only a passage from this life to the eternal life in which you will earn by His merit. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now Christ is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, He is the first fruits. If He has gone into the heavenly realities, we will follow Him by union with Christ. By one man came death, indeed, by, men, by one man also came the resurrection of the dead. Paul says in verse 21, Not Adam all died, but in Christ all shall be made alive. But there's an order to this, verse 23, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at His coming, and then comes the end. So think about a train. Think about a train. What is the, the, the first thing that you see? I, I lived in, in New York for, for a while and I would go to the subway. I would be there waiting for, for a subway to come. The first thing that you see there when you are in the subway is the locomotive. The first one, the first one, the first wagon is the one that drives the rest of it, right? That has the motor. And you see it coming far away. There's a light far away there. When you see that first locomotive coming, the first wagon, you know that the whole train is coming because all the other ones are attached to him, right? Christ is the first fruits. If you see that He has gone into the heavenly realities and you are attached to Him, you are His, you are His possession, you will follow. Death is not an enemy anymore. It's just a passage from this life to the life to come. Because Christ has conquered death. He has conquered death indeed. He has resurrected. We should not fear death. We, we really should not. Yes, we fear pain. We fear the loss of loved ones. We fear leaving this world and maybe leaving kids around, maybe leaving family members. This is all a fearful thing, but we also trust in the providence of God. And death itself is not an enemy anymore because it has been conquered. But third, the resurrection of Christ, and this is true for both the death and the resurrection of Christ, I would say, it really confirms to us the truthfulness of Scripture. As we look into those doctrines being predicted of old, fulfilled in Him, preached by Paul, we see that the Scriptures are true. You see, if you, if you live with someone and this person is always telling a lie to you, it comes to a point that you just lose your confidence in this person. You can't trust him anymore. But if you live with someone that always tells the truth, even to his own cost, you start to trust that person. You see, again and again, skeptics come to the Scriptures. They come and they question the truthfulness of the Bible. And they say that the Bible is not true. They say it's, it's foolishness to think that a man has died and resurrected. And indeed, if you, if you consider your own human experience, how many people do you know that have resurrected in your neighborhood? How many? Tell me one. If this was the case that there was just an old wife's tale, a story about this man being resurrected... Maybe we should be right to reject that. But that's not the case. This is something that has been predicted a thousand years before in Isaiah 53, 700 years before in Psalm 22, Psalm 16, by David. And time and time again, if you keep searching the Scriptures, you see that the death and the resurrection of Christ has been according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. Everywhere. 
You can trust this word. It has never failed you. It will never fail you. It is true. It has been attested. Not only by the test of time, but God himself shows this to be true in your heart by the Holy Spirit who convinces you of righteousness, of justice, of your own sin, and brings you over to the truthfulness of Scripture. The doctrine of the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ according to the Scriptures shows us that this is true. You can trust the Scripture in its entirety. At times, God's, God gives us a, as if it were a glance into into the, his outworkings in history, in the way in which he, he works out the tapestry of history. And I think that 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those little windows in which he shows us that the gospel is according to the scriptures indeed. And we are able to look back and think and reason by the word of God, according to the word of God, how he has orchestrated everything to come up in Christ. But this is frequent in the scriptures. If you, if you read texts like Hebrews chapter 1, that at sundry times God has spoken to us by the prophets, but in those last days He's spoken to us by the Son, who is the express image of the glory of God. And then you keep reading how God has orchestrated all history to come together into Christ Himself, into this one event of Christ dying and resurrecting on the third day, you look at texts like Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that talk about the manifestation of grace. That grace was manifested, came into time by the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and in His resurrection again. And again and again, the Scripture is showing you this is true. If the Scripture could talk to you, it would tell you today from this text, you can trust me because I have never, never failed you. Because everything makes sense when you put it together. Because what was predicted of old was fulfilled later. And Paul really wants this to be in the hearts and minds of the Corinthian church. That's why he repeats this expression so often here. That's why he presents arguments. That's why he presents reasoning to convince them. Not with a blind faith, but to, with a faith that looks at the objective realities of the gospel presented to us by the scripture so that we can hold on to it. And as we hold on to the objective realities of the gospel, we indeed have faith. And we can have a faith that sees beyond, beyond what this world offers us. By faith, we can see the heavenly realities that awaits us because Christ has resurrected and finally, brothers and sisters, as we look at the resurrection of Christ being preached to us from this text by the Apostle Paul, we are encouraged. We are encouraged indeed. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of the chapter, talks to us about our final victory for us to be awaited. It says in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor corruption can inherit incorruption, but there's a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all asleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Verse 53, the corruptible bodies must put on incorruption, the mortal bodies must put on immortality. And then, when this comes, 
we will see, indeed, that which we have discussed before, that death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, but it's done away in the cross. The strength of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul finishes this chapter with an encouragement flowing out of the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, that in light of this, because we can expect a final victory, therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, as I bring this message to, to an end, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that because the resurrection of Christ is real, there's a promise to be fulfilled that we will be united to Him in His resurrection, which makes our work in this life not vain, but meaningful, meaningful. So as you live your life and, and it's so hard and there are challenges to your faith and you lose job opportunities because you're trying to be faithful and not to do things in the wrong way and, and you start relationships and you start to date someone but you, you just have to trust in the Lord that He will send the right person because this person doesn't honor the Lord with me. And there are many things that you give up in this life to, in order to be holy, to be faithful, to be holy in the sight of your God, faithful to Him. And you can think, you can be tempted to think that it is vain to be a believer as you work in the church and it is so hard sometimes because you deal with difficult people in difficult circumstances and people are so stubborn in their sins and you see so little progress in their sanctification. You can be discouraged as you look at your own life and how, how hard it is to fight sin and, oh, I wish I would be more holy and that my progression would be quicker. And it takes a lot of work to get a little bit of sanctification by the Spirit in you. And you can be discouraged. There are many things here that can tempt us to think that this labor in our life for holiness in the sight of God is vain. But Paul is saying, my beloved brother, be steadfast, be constant, firm, immovable, and be abundant. Not only don't be moved away from the faith, but be abundant fruitful in the work of Christ, the work of the Lord, because you know this. Your faith, your labor in faith is not vain because you are united with your Lord who has resurrected, who will come again, who has given you already victory over death, which will be fulfilled one day completely. So as we come to the end of this message, brothers and sisters, be reminded of those basic truths of the gospel. You can never graduate from the death and the resurrection of Christ. Those are the basics of the gospel. And be reminded that in Christ, your work, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we come to you who has said that you are the resurrection and the life. And we declare this evening that we trust in you, that we believe in you, that we trust in your words, and we come to you. You are the only one. You are the source of life. Where would we go, O beloved Christ, if you are the only one who have words of eternal life? So here we are. Here we come. Please, engraft those truths into our minds. The truths of the death and the resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. Lord, let us see the greatness, the beauty, the splendor, the majesty 
of your death and your resurrection as they were foretold and accomplished in you. And the benefits that we derive from this, justification, sanctification, glorification, everything that is promised to us in you, beloved Christ, because we have been united with you. Oh, what glorious truths we have in you, beloved Lord Jesus. Let us see those truths in clarity from your word in the scriptures and be encouraged to live holy lives here. Remind us, Lord, by your spirit of those words that have been preached from this pulpit this morning and this evening, time after time again, so that we are indeed firm in you, Lord. Give us more of you, more of your word, more of your presence. And even when we don't feel anything or when we are discouraged and when we don't feel as encouraging in the walk with Christ, let, let us be reminded of the objective truths of the gospel so that we will place our faith in you. I pray that you would apply those truths to the hearts of my brothers and sisters here in the congregation and to me and myself. Be with us, we pray. Oh Lord, amen.